This morning, we are continuing in our series of messages called Unstoppable. And if you are new to grace, uh, this is a series of messages that's not about the best and the brightest filling the church, which makes us an unstoppable force. But rather, this is what we do in the face of, of um, a seeming cultural war. That we find ourselves in. And the question begs, what does God's word really have to say to us about the church and about what he's doing? What is this thing that is happening around us? Well, we know based upon the authority of God's word, in reality, Christ promised that the church would be unstoppable. And it's not because, like I said, because we're filled with the best and the brightest or the most talented, although we have that here. But the reality is it's because it's based upon the promise of the gospel about who Jesus is and how lives are changed. And because God's spirit is at work, the reality is God's church is unstoppable. Well, today we're going to look at the message called learning how to fight. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like to direct you to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We just have six verses we're going to look at this morning. Paul writing, here he says... I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh." For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When Christ promises in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, upon, against the confession that Jesus was and is the Messiah, the hope of humanity, this promise begs through the ages, how does that make us unstoppable? Especially as you arrive this morning in in a sense that there is a battle raging around us. It may seem to you that the battle is a political one. It may seem that the battle is centered somehow in inequality and in injustice. Or maybe you may think somehow wealth imbalance is part of the problem, or drugs, which are killing our kids, or maybe it's the lack of good middle-class jobs. 
You need not look far for those who propagate these arguments. But is that really where the battle lies? And I want to offer you today, in the time we have remaining, of what, not what men say are our issues, but rather what does God say for God's people? How is it that we do battle? How is it that we learn to fight? What does God say from his word to us as believers? And as believers who sit in this room this morning, I want to urge you, pay careful attention For the battle is one that you will not necessarily see, but you constantly experience and actually witness. So you say, well, Brian, that seems to be, what what does that, what do you mean by that? Well, this passage is not the, the easiest one to work through, which is why Brad Bigney assigns it to me. But I want to talk to you about how to fight. And even, and even as I say that, you may go, well, Brian, even in the email I went out, how does a peace-loving people who's been transformed by the death and resurrection of Christ, how is it that fighting, where does that work together? What does that mean? Does that mean that we need to be garnishing swords, getting our rifles out? Not at all. In fact, Paul's argument here is about how the believer takes on a battle that is in a realm that you may not even have considered. So let's, let's just jump right in here. To learn how to fight, here are some things that we've got to do. Number one, to learn how to fight, you must focus yourself daily on who you are in Christ. We can genuinely forget who we are. It's not a hard thing for any of us to do. Between maybe you were taught as a child, as you lay in bed at night before you go to sleep, maybe you have prayers, maybe you pray with your children before they go to sleep at night. And between that moment when you lay your head on your pillow and the next morning when you wake up, you forget who you are. Especially when we're thrust into struggles. And Paul's letter here is in the midst of a struggle. You need to understand the context of what he is saying to these people here. He's appealing to a group of people who's not exactly impressed with him. And Paul's appeal to them is not from their, his pedigree. And you may not know this about Paul, but the apostle Paul was no slouch intellectually. He held the equivalent of a PhD, bright, smart, discerning, but certainly not impressive. In fact, they, they, uh, they're not impressed with him at all. But notice what he does. Even as people oppose him, notice what he says in verse 1. I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I'm talking about fighting. Paul's using warrior speak. But the warrior speak that Paul talks about is not what we would typically think. In fact, Paul reflects on the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He is appealing to them out of the character of who he is and what has changed in his life. 
Maybe you are one of those individuals who found themselves in a situation, maybe with someone very close to you, maybe people that you work with. And whether you did it outright or not, you've been in those moments where those oppose you or they argue with you and you wanted, maybe it welled up out of you and flew out of your mouth. How dare you? You ever done that? Whether you did it overtly, whether it was just thought or really where it, when it came out in the heat of the battle. But notice that's not what Paul does. Paul's appeal is out of the character of Christ. And when I say to you, you've got to focus yourself daily to fight, you've got to focus yourself daily on who you are in Christ, it's because we forget that the weapons that we fight with do not sound very warrior-like. This is not a conventional war with smart bombs, nor who is the sharpest debater. This is a war fought on spiritual realm, and it starts with the humility of who you are in Jesus Christ. Conversations between adults will often find their way, especially with strangers. You ask, what do you do for a living? What do you do? How many kids do you have? We discuss these kind of things. And this can be a great launching point. But for anyone who has gone through a time in their life where they were either downsized or they struggled with their career choice or their career has been anything but fulfilling right now, They know what it's like to wake up and think, what has happened to my life? You ever been there? What's happened to me? God never intended his children to live confused about who you really are and to whom you belong. Companies will ask for your soul And they will gladly take it and we hand it over. But at the end of the day, we find ourselves asking this question, what has happened? Maybe maybe you've had your mate look at you and say, what's happened to you? And this happens to us all the time. And if this is happening to you, I've got incredible news for you. God never intended you to live not Knowing who you really are. You must learn to daily focus yourself on who you are in Christ Jesus. And this is the central theme. Some of you sit here today and you you really wonder, what is Christianity all about? What is this? Is this a bunch of rules? Is this a bunch of goody two-shoes? What is this? The reality is Paul's teaching is centered In two little words, it is the most pervasive theme that you see flowing from him. In fact, you see it, just just look back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn back one book, I want to show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 2. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul's central teaching... Now, as you find your way there, I want you to look up here at me just for a second. Now, for those of you who don't know much about the Bible, it's okay. The Corinthian church was a hot mess. And that is putting it 
politely. It was a culturally elite city and a city full of problems and full of people with problems, people who compared themselves one to the other. There was uh, in this church immorality run amok. There was drunkenness going on at the Lord's Supper. People showing up drunk. All kinds of issues. And to that church, he writes this letter. Notice what he says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother, Sosinthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Did you hear it? Called to be what? Saints. In Christ Jesus. So you sit here this morning and you look at your life and you may not feel very saintly. You may feel a whole lot like the church at Corinth. But the reality is when God looks at you, he looks at us as believers in Christ Jesus. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. Set apart for God's glory. That's who you are. And we quickly forget it. Paul talks about being in Christ Jesus in the book of Ephesians. He says that it's your provision for what you face today. Every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 uh, verse 3, is laid up for you. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In verse 11 and 12 in the book of Ephesians, he talks about that your future destiny is in Christ Jesus. This is who you are, but you can find yourself very easily off the reservation of that. I heard Peter Lord, you may know him, he's a pastor in Florida many years ago. I I heard him teach on using a parable. And have you ever seen this book called Turkeys and Eagles? I would not commend it to you because it's full of a lot of bones. But there there was one thing in this book that was quite amazing. It was this teaching this word picture about Christians. And it kind of goes like this. He tells this story about this eaglet, this young eaglet. And the eaglet's in the nest one day, and the eaglet has not quite learned how to use its wings, and the eaglet falls out of the nest. And if you know anything about eagles, they, they nest extremely high, and it's a long way from up there down to the ground. But because gravity works the same with everything, down to the ground, the eaglet comes. Hits the ground hard. Gets rattled. So much so that when it gets up, it's disoriented. And it wanders around. This little eaglet wanders around for a few days. And as it wanders around in the woods, it becomes hungry. And it runs into a bunch of turkeys along the way. And the turkeys are kind and they want to help him. So they say... Oh, come with us. We'll show you how to live as a turkey. And so they teach him how to scratch and how to eat acorns. And the eagle tried very hard to fit in with the turkeys. But nuts did not quite taste right. And the forest floor was somehow not quite right either. And one day in discouragement, the little eaglet sat down at the base of a tree. And as it sat at the base of the tree, high above it heard... This voice, 
who are you? Who are you? And the legalist says, oh, I I think uh, I'm not real sure, but I think I'm a turkey. And the wise owl spoke back and says, you're no turkey. You are no turkey. You've forgotten who you are and what you were designed to do. You were made to soar. And I believe that as I look at Bible-believing Christians, that I have a chance to work, work with, and they live in a culture that is diametrically opposed to them, often they feel defeated in their work, defeated in their home, defeated in their thinking. They have just enough failure in them. They just say, I'm a turkey. You're not a turkey. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, You belong to the king of kings and you are a child of the king and you were designed for so much more. And in Christ Jesus, you have what you need to fight and to have victory. But we forget it. So what do you do? How do you learn to fight? Secondly, you and I are called to engage in the battle that shapes how you will live. Engage in the battle that shapes how you live. Now look at verses 3 through 5 again. I want to take you back to the text. Look what Paul says. As he talks to them gently, he says this to them. He wants to correct their thinking. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is this battle that I am talking about that shapes how you live? Well, I believe it's found right here. And that battle is this. It is the battle for your mind. It's the battle for how you think. And what you think about and what you do out of what you think about. The person you will be, listen carefully to this. The person that you're going to be in five years, you are becoming that person today. By the choices that you make and the things that you think about. The things that you allow your mind to dwell on. And verses 3, 4, and 5 are awkwardly translated in modern English. You can go read. There's all kinds of translations. It's awkward. But here is the gist of it. Paul is saying that though you and I walk around in our body, our war that we fight is really not a physical one. It is a spiritual battle. And the spiritual battle is first fought, first in your thinking. Your thinking is intimately linked to your motivations and what you want comes out of that. That is called your heart. And Proverbs 4 verse 23 says this, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. God calls you to keep your heart, to keep it. Years ago, I heard a trainer say, how you think is everything. 
And I thought about that. that. That still rings back in my head. Even to this day, how you think is everything. And I contend that that's close, but it's not quite complete. Actually, it's more like this. What you think about will lead to what you think about what really matters. What you think about will lead you to what you really think about what really matters. Which leads to what you value and ultimately what you do. In other words, listen to this. Come back to me. You get the brain, the body will follow right after. This is why I will say to you that obeying the rules does not change the heart. It just doesn't. The enemy of your soul does not care how many of these services that you sit through. Did you know that? Just come on, sit down. How often you look around and feel good about being here. Go to church. Drop a 20. Drop a 10. Drop a 50 in the box. Get a good moral lesson. That is not the battleground. And he doesn't care how much you do it. The battleground is the throne of your life's direction. For whom will you live? Who Will you please? Who do you really worship? That's the battleground. And as Christians, our fight is laid out for us. Paul teaches the Corinthian church right here. He appeals to them that they have divine power. Look there, what he says. He says, our war is not in the body, but we have divine power. Now, it's an interesting wordplay here. The word divine is the Greek word theos, so it means God. We have God power. And these, this uh, word for power is the same. He used here weapons. And this word for weapons that we have is the same word. It's a Greek word that where we get the word dynamite. Dynamito, dynamai. This is where we get it. These are God's dynamite. Like I said, come get a moral lesson. But I guarantee you, if I lit a stick of dynamite and pitched it in the room, we'd clear the place. And this is what happens when you enlist God's power against that which stands against God. God's power, this is not your fight, it's God's fight. And he has given you in Christ Jesus exactly what you need to to know victory. And it's able to do this. He says it's able to tear down strongholds. Now I love this word for stronghold. Tearing it down, these strongholds, is the same word that's used for a fortified place. A stronghold is a fortified place. And you have fortified positions right now in your head. And these fortified positions did not get there overnight. And the longer that you live with these fortified positions, the more entrenched they become in your life. Some of them you just do naturally, seemingly without thought. For the people that sit in this room that's been driving for any amount of time, do you know that when you drive your vehicle... 
that you're constantly making little adjustments to keep the, road, the car in the, right in the road? Do you even think about that? It just happens. I used to think my dad was magic because his hands would move just a little bit and the car would get... I, I didn't know he was doing. I thought... So when I first started driving, I would grab a hold of the wheel and I'd do like this, you know, try to keep it straight. We just do these things. And you have fortified positions in your mind about what success looks like, what really matters, what you really want. So you may sit here today and think, Brian, you know, some of these things are habits for me. And how do I change that? And I would contend with you, new habits, breaking, breaking old habits is hard. I just call it what it is. It's hard to break old habits the way you think. But I want to tell you something that's harder. Living for Jesus Christ and not changing. That's harder. Because the Holy Spirit of God comes to you and convicts you and knocks on the door of your heart and say, there's something more, there's something more, there's something more. You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Old things have passed away. New things have come. But when you face continued failure, you may simply assume, I won't ever change. You don't know how to fight. You don't know where to begin. For some of us in this room, we know what it's like to want to be free from some of the things that absolutely mess us up. We know what it's like to make decisions and go for a period of time and things are better and then to fall right back in the old patterns. And I want you to understand experientially I know what it's like to want freedom from life dominating thought patterns. Some of them are not necessarily bad but they're certainly not necessarily God-honoring. I know what it's like to have habits. I know what it's like to have sin in my life. And this is what I found. I found that people are often willing to do something. But very few of us are willing to do what it takes to have a new day. Are you willing to do what it takes? Are you willing to get in the battle? Are you willing to take on your greatest enemy? The enemy of your soul? Namely you? Are you willing to take it on? The battle begins with arguments. This is what he says here. Christians, we are fighting arguments. Now this Greek word right here that he used is a a word for logic. At the center of these arguments that we hear that goes on in our head and comes to us from the outside is often today in a postmodern culture, this is about verifiable fact. So if you sit here this morning and you, you, you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity and you, and you live in this modern world, you go, well, where's the verifiable fact? And so this is how it typically goes. If something is scientifically observable, 
and provable, it has validity. And this is the rationale for some of those who argue that there's no way to prove God. And as our habit as believers, and I used to do this as well, I would point people to Romans chapter 1 to counter this position that our heart cries out, though we seek to suppress truth, our heart cries out, there's got to be a God, there's got to be a God, there's got to be a God. And I still use this argument, but I no longer deeply engage dialogue about this, about verifiable facts. Because this approach is about actually something that they're not interested in at all. I found that those that I dialogue in that way, they're not interested in truth. Because from their point of view, truth is a relative term. Truth for you is different than truth for me. But even this, understand this, arguments that based in fact have holes. Just as there is no way to prove God, do you know there is no way to not prove God? It cannot be proven. And what I have found that pretense flows out of our arguments. This pretense goes something like this. Why does God not do this? And if God is good, why did he not prevent that? You heard that? Absolutely. It's all formed in what Paul calls Logic. And we go from A to Z and fill in all the blanks in between because we carry pretense into the argument. He also talks about lofty opinions. That our our, our fight is against lofty opinions. This is the Greek word for hyper. It's like we're all over the place. We all have opinions. Many of them. And what this is focused upon is actually the prideful speculations of reasoning that flow out of us to one degree or another. These are the things that exalt humanity. These are the things that exalt you. These are the things that you are perfectly open to as long as it does not get in the way of what you want. Paul says that our battle is against these reasonings and arguments. Now come back to me for a moment. Let's have a talk just for a second. Let's calm down the debate that goes on in our heads. When we get caught up in arguments like this, we forget the basics. We forget that Christianity is actually based upon significant propositional truth. And you and I must wrestle with this truth. We must wrestle with the claims of Christ about who he is and what he has accomplished for us. It is either truth or or it's not. To reject him takes thinking just as accepting him does. But let's be clear about something this morning. Accepting Christ means that there is one claim for the throne of your life. It is reserved for not for you, but for another. And his name is King Jesus. He comes to demolish arguments. He comes to fight against anything that takes the throne away from him and exalts you on it. 
anything or anyone on that throne other than Jesus Christ. He's coming after it. You know what happens? The reality is when we think about someone else on the throne of our life, somebody else directing our life, it makes us very uneasy, especially as Americans. We have no king for a reason. There's a bar in Massachusetts. It's an early colonial bar. When you walk in, it says, no sovereigns here. We don't know what it's like to have a king. But we actually have a king. Someone is reigning and ruling on the throne of your life at this moment. And the matter of this that Paul is discussing here is who's going to sit on the throne of your life? And are you going to be willing to fight for who is rightly appropriated to that throne? Are you willing? Because we fight this thing that goes in our head, on in our heads. We often do not know the lies that we believe. We just believe whatever comes. It's on the internet, it's truth, right? But we believe lies. We believe that if Christ becomes Lord, we lose freedom. We think that God's kingdom will limit joy and fulfillment. And we go from A to Z without thought and rather automatically. I like how Keller said it. He says, you don't go from freedom to slavery by becoming a Christian. You go from slavery to freedom because freedom is no lack of a master. Freedom is not the lack of a king. It's finding a true king. And everybody's got one. Third. God calls us to enlist effective weapons that destroy strongholds, which keep you from living with hope and with purpose. Living as a Christian can seem like an endless cycle of short stretches of success and then setbacks that seemingly cripple you. And when I say there's only one rightful ruler on the throne of your life, that means each day... He is king. He is King Jesus. And he's there to help you make the changes that you need to make. So where do you begin? So Brian, where do you practically begin? And I want to show you, I think the text shows us some things that we can do. Number one, where do you begin? You enlist first your most fundamental weapon. And this is declaration. Now, some of this is going to be brand new to you because you may have never seen that in Scripture, and that's okay, but I want to show you what I mean by this. Turn with me in this same book back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I am a great debt to Elise Fitzpatrick in her book, Counseling from the Cross. She does one of the best... uh, analysis of what this is about in that book. So I commend it to you. It's an oldie, but it is a goodie. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, unless first your most fundamental weapon, which is declaration. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look down in verse 14. 
Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, stop. He says, we've concluded this. He makes a declaration. One has died for all, therefore all have died. You see it? Declaration. He wants them to understand this is what's happened to you as a believer. You died with Christ and life is new because of Jesus Christ. Declaration. Then watch what he says. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what are you saying here, Brian? What are you saying? First, get things in order first. We have a tendency to ask, what do I do to make a change? We want the list of things to do. Do this, do that, do the other. Don't do that. Don't do this, don't do the other. And we're about doing. But Paul is about first, your thinking. And your thinking must be rooted in a declaration. What you have in Jesus Christ. And then what happens is the obligation comes after that. So notice, he says, one died for all, therefore all died. So that the obligation after that. So that you no longer live for yourselves, but for him who died and was raised for you. You've got to get the steps in right order. This is the only way that you take every thought captive in verse 5. You've got to get the declarations right in your life. This is how you renew your mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says that he appeals to us by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And for us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? How? By the renewing of your mind. The war is fought first in your brain. Not in your behavior. Long before a guy jumps in bed with someone who is not his wife, his brain has been there. Long before the wife who at one time served her family faithfully in the meekness and the character of Christ, she's concluded in her mind, they don't care, they don't appreciate me. We set aside right thinking, never knowing, and all our focus is on behavior, everything that's going on around us. And we conclude that's where the battle's won. But the battle, it starts in your mind. It starts in us renewing our mind. Here's also how you fight number two. When we talk about renewing your mind, well, renewing your mind about what? Let's start with you. Let's start with me. We've got to be killing pride and cultivating humility daily. Now, this is carefully worded for a reason. Notice, 
killing is not complete. You're never going to kill it completely. You've got to be killing. And I love our pastor, our lead pastor, Brad Bigney. One of the things that struck me most when I really got to know him, and I asked him, how can I pray for you? He never said, Brian, pray that I would kill pride. Do you know what he says? He says, pray that I will be killing pride every day. And that's what you've got to do too. We've got to kill, be killing pride and cultivating humility daily. And this is Paul's tone in chapter 10. That's why he comes with gentleness and meekness and not spouting his right, but comes appealing to them. He's reflecting the character of Christ, humble. But notice this, just as Jesus is going to come again, and as he comes as warrior king again, Paul says, if I show up, I can show that there is another side. We must be killing pride and cultivating humility daily. So, what does this look like, actually? So I ask you a question. Tell me something that you hate. Now, I'm not asking you to throw anything out. What do you really hate? I hate runny eggs. I don't like eggs much, period. In fact, I have concluded that I'm going to write a book about a new diet for those who don't like eggs. For me, all you got to do is set somebody in front of me who's eating a runny egg. It'll kill my appetite in a heartbeat immediately. They, the way they smell, the way they look. Listen, runny noses and runny eggs are synonymous to me. And just when you use the word runny, it's just not something that I want to be near, okay? I'm kind of shallow like that. There's things that I just don't like. In fact, just downright, ugh, despise. What does God hate? James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but there's fights that I take on. I don't want to be fighting God. When the Bible says God opposes the proud, it is God comes against him. But he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs chapter 6, go read it. Things that God hates. Number one on the list is a haughty eye. A haughty eye is an eye that looks down. Toward others. Thinks they're better. It's a pervasive theme of scripture. Pride is man's downfall. And at the heart of this is this. It is these lofty, reasonable, uh, rationalized opinions of yourself. And then there's the whole other side, which is also pride. It's that part of you that when you mess up, you just say, I should know better. You know what that actually is? That's alluding that somehow there's goodness in you and you ought to know better. When you say that to your kid, you ought to know better. As if there's something in them that is really good and they ought to know better. 
the reality is they're a whole lot like you. Prone to failure. It's a pervasive theme. This is the why the daily battle is about putting off parts of you that are actually destructive to you, and you're just lulled into sleep and think that they're not. And I think the same things. This is why we need, oh God, please let me cling to the cross. It is my only hope. My only right standing with God is in Jesus Christ plus nothing, period. We've got to be killing pride. We've got to be cultivating, cultivating humility, and it's got to be done uh, daily. Third, how do you do it? How do you begin? Where does it begin? You've got to do this. I started just to say you've got to trust God fully. That's what I wanted to say. Trust God fully. And then I, I just know the looks that I, okay, Brian, I want to trust God fully. How do you do that? I'm convinced the renewal of the mind has got to be a replacing mechanism. You've got to replace old thoughts with new thoughts. And the only way to get new thoughts into your life and to where you trust God fully is you've got to see God actively at work. Go to your Bible. We need God's word in our lives. And what this means is we've got to learn to abide in God's word. Psalm 119 is a, a psalm, a long, the longest psalm in the Bible. And what you see here is there's great delight in God's word. There's a meditation on the word. There it's permeating his life and he's praying it back to God. See, this is not just about reading the Bible to get information, but allowing it to permeate your soul and dwelling on the goodness of God. As Psalm 34 says, you taste and see that the Lord, He is good. God asking you to vacate the throne of your life is not to rob you of joy, but to give you greater joy. Amazing joy. That only he can give when he's rightly positioned in your life. Pray biblically to trust God fully. Now, my memory, in the year 2000, I had a surgery on my neck, carotid body tumor removed. I was on the table about nine hours longer than anticipated. And that will mess you up, just plain and simple. And so my wife shows me, she has shown me pictures of things that we've done, and I have no clue. I don't remember some of these things. And as I age, I also do not remember things well. I, like Brad, I have to work hard with names, and I appreciate the kindness and the patience that you show me. I didn't used to have that problem at all, but I do now. Memorizing long passages of Scripture is a hard thing for me. Constantly dwelling on Scripture is a difficult, challenging thing for me. So I have found, not shortcuts, but some things that have been good that I'm going to offer you today. 
So God gave us pockets for a reason, to carry things. So I carry things. So daily when I am with the Lord and I read something, and it's a good reminder for me that day of what I need to do, I take out this little card that I cut up and I write it down. So I want to offer you what I shared this morning. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 from the New Living Translation. Listen to this. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Well, what a novel idea. And so every day at lunchtime, it's just my habit. When I eat, I reach in my pocket, I pull out my cards, and I go through them. You can remember to do that. This will renew your mind. It will help you change and grow. All right. We're out of time. I want to focus with you just one second about something that you need to understand. Brad, I'm going to ask you to come to the piano just for a second. We're going to pray. And as we do... I'm reminded that it's very easy to come up with a list of things that we need to do to change. Why would God want this? Why would God want change in our life? When God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he prohibited one thing, was it about setting out a rule for them not to do something good? I think our tendency is to believe, yes, that's what he was, he's saying. Anything, not that. Why? Everything that God makes is good. Why? That's what we do. Why? 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 Why can't I do that? Why can't I have that? Why can't I pursue that? Why can't I do that? Doesn't God want me to be happy? The throne of your life is reserved for one person, King Jesus. And here's the reason why. What God asks of us is not the do and the don't. It's not about obeying. It's about trust. I've given my children many things I wanted them to do. But as they aged and they began asking dad, why? It's no, it just falls hollow. Because I said so, listen to me. God says to our heart, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. And that's what he's after. He's after your trust. Vacate the throne of your life. Place him where he belongs. And life for you in Christ Jesus will be unstoppable. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the promise that there are spiritual war, uh, warfare tools that we have that will make a difference. Oh God, help our minds to be renewed. Oh God, help us live daily in a way where you are king and Lord of our life. In Jesus' name.